Hello, and welcome to the Poplar Podcast. I am always am Justin, your host. Today, we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to have this conversation about what's happening in the housing market and how it compares to some times in the past that we've had similar kind of struggle and problems and what one of the weird stories that comes out of this. So this is going to be a deep cut. We're going to talk for a minute. Then we're going to talk about Sears and mail order homes. And you'll see why we're doing that as we discuss this. So right now in September of 2022, it is rough out there for buyers and it is rough out there for renters. We're coming out of the pandemic with this housing supply crunch. There is more demand than there is supply. And there's a lot of reasons for that. The older generation is aging in place because they're healthier and able to. So that longevity holds them into their home where normally they would have been in a an assisted living facility or a nursing home or have moved in with relatives so they can have the care that they need. They don't need that care. They're doing really well. They've got new knees and new eyeballs and the cancer is gone and they're doing really well, which is great. I want them to be here as long as possible. I want my parents to be here forever, but I know how this works. Right now though, they're sticking around, they're holding on to their houses. The other piece that's pushing on this is from the other end, and that's all the people who have been delaying their household formation. It's these kids that came out of college into the Great Recession, then they spent the next five or 10 years kind of going, oh, I have no money and no ability to buy a house, and there's no houses. I'm gonna live with my parents. I'm gonna live with my friends. And all of a sudden they're going, nope, now it's time for me to start a household. It's time for me and my spouse to go buy a house and figure out if we're gonna raise kids. So they've delayed having kids, they've delayed household formation. So that hit, and it was accelerated by the pandemic because the pandemic hit and all these people who are working jobs that are then suddenly remote that were packed into maybe two couples in a two bedroom. There's not a lot of office space there when four people start working from home. That's gonna push real hard on breaking those households up. The other stuff is kind of systemic pressures, and these systemic pressures are on the land use side. So permitting in the United States has historically been very much controlled to encourage whatever policies that state and that area has at the time. So we'll get into these on a different one, but permitting and land use has reduced the number of dense developments that have happened. They reduce the amount of land that's available to be used, and so that just kind of sits on the edge as a geographical pressure. You also have this nimbyism, this not in my backyard theory that pushes against larger developments. It pushes against some of these uh, apartment buildings that could go in, new condo complexes that could go in, mixed use facilities get pushed against because people want to retain the character of the neighborhood that they purchased. And that's understandable, but it also really limits the ability to shift and change as the whole world shifts and changes. It's it's hard to keep your little pocket insulated from that. You know, one of the ones that's really good at that is HOAs. They push really hard on any changes to the structures to the point where we're now seeing states get involved with regulating what HOAs can regulate, which is good. Uh, the two that come out in my mind on this are in several states, if an HOA cannot restrict you from getting solar panels, where prior they could. Uh, in Utah, they recently shifted so that an HOA cannot keep you from getting zero scape landscaping. So the stuff that belongs in the desert and does well here, 
it used to be HOA said, nope, all green yards. And now they can't make that restriction. So there's this, this tension there, but that HOA push is going back and forth. The other one that we've seen kind of some movement at the federal level recently is infrastructure. And when I talk about infrastructure, I mean all the stuff to sustain all the people in other places. This is local stuff like sewage and local roads and water, but it's also larger giant national projects. Everything from rail lines to interstate freeways to power interchanges between two different states. All these things kind of control where you can build property. You'll see a lot of stories from the land rush back in the day when people are just buying up land and speculating on that land where if somebody had knowledge of a particular development that was about to happen, they'd buy up all the land all around that area because they knew about it. It was kind of insider trading on land. So they buy up that land, the railroad shows up, uh, a new town springs up, uh, there's a dam, you know, when they built Hoover Dam in Vegas, that was a huge push for the, the city. But all these things like that, that land use, was based on infrastructure. Well, right now, we're really behind just maintaining the existing infrastructure. So while we get our bridges and roads and tunnels, infrastate, railroad, in, interstate and railroads back up to snuff, we're not investing that money in brand new infrastructure. So there's this logged debt against infrastructure we don't have. So we're starting to see some different things happening around this that are kind of interesting um, that could help with some of this pressure, but it also means that we don't necessarily have all of these things ready to go. Probably the biggest one of these recently is the shift in California. And this one's not so much about new stuff. This is about expanding what's existing and it's this additional dwelling unit law. So what they've done in California is said that you can put in an additional dwelling unit on top of the garage or in the back. It's what used to be called a mother-in-law. It's kind of a self-contained unit that is relying on the same properties, plumbing and electrical and all that, but it's tacked on almost as a, an apartment. So all of a sudden these houses can become not a duplex, but have one more rentable unit on it or one more livable unit. This lets, again, some of the stuff happen like people age in place and go, yeah, but I don't need this giant house we'll put on a really nice place above the garage for grandma and then the rest of the family can move in downstairs and have their own house and space instead of sharing all the space since grandma's still um, functional and movable enough to have that space. And I'm using grandma here specifically because w this happened with my grandmother. My uncle built a room addition on top of his home in Ramona, California, and my grandmother lived there for gosh, decades. And she loved it. She had her own space. She could cook, she could read, she could watch what she wanted. And she was still close enough that if something happened, my family was there to help and take out, take care of her. The other stuff that's happening, but is happening slower is things around land use ordinances and like permitting process. These, I mean, these are still difficult to get around because a lot of those things are in place for um, safety and for keeping the density from going too off the charts for what the infrastructure can support, right? So these kind of play into each other. But in places where it's been really conservative, there's kind of a, a shift to try and reevaluate that. 
I think an interesting contrast here is somewhere like San Diego and LA, where you have this sprawl, but you have one city center that primarily is the hub of everything. And that's usually closer to the ocean. And then on the other side is somewhere like Houston that has like, geez, 30 city centers. Um, but there's problems with that too, because that that paving of everything increases flooding risk. So there's there's this balance on both sides, but they're looking at that, they're trying to figure it out. Then on the construction side, there's all kinds of new stuff happening that's super interesting. There's People are talking about 3D printing houses. That's pretty, I don't think that's close. That's my opinion, I don't think it's close. I think it's really interesting right now. What I do think is interesting is the prefabs that are coming in as a bunch of panels. This, I think, it has the potential to be um, as big as uh, mobile home parks were in the 80s and 90s, where it became this spot where you could buy what was in many cases a very nice home, especially the double wides and four bedroom, two and a half bath kind of things that are great homes that they just kind of drive up, park, and then they're done. These new prefabs, though, they're everything from there's a company called Boxable where it's basically a weird looking shipping container that unfolds and then it's a house. There's even the mobile lifestyle that people are starting to do now where they're living off grid in a motor home and then going and building somewhere in the middle of nowhere. So they're kind of doing dry camping while they build out a house from parts. So they don't have to have a house to live out there, which is another direction you can go. Um, There's a couple of probably tough shed level houses that you can buy off of Amazon. And by that, I mean they're, they're tough shed. So it's basically... Four walls and a roof. Occasionally it's barn style, so it has a second floor. There is no plumbing. There is no electrical. But they have enough integrity that if you wanted to fully insulate it, fully plumb it, and kind of go that way, you probably could figure out a way to make it that and make it stronger. So that's an interesting thing. And that kind of pivots me to what I'm thinking about now is, is there a way to kind of integrate all these different ideas that are happening from the panelization of homes to the boxable stuff to the additional dwelling unit piece? And kind of, is there an opportunity for Amazon or somebody like Amazon to do a pack and ship home where you buy it, it's delivered, they drop it off from a truck and you assemble it on site or you pay to have it assembled on site or it's magic and you push a button and it goes boop, 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 and it turns into a house. Um, sure. Why not? And a big piece of the why not here is to look at what Sears did. So Sears is an American company that recently went bankrupt, but while we recognize that its bankruptcy in 2018 had a lot of causes, let's look at the way it rose to glory. And one of those projects was a thing called the Modern Homes Project. Now, a lot of us know Sears, if we grew up in a a tool house, then Craftsman Tools was the thing. Uh, They were dependable, they were good, they were mid-range, they weren't higher-end stuff that you'd see for super aficionados like Snap-on. Snap-on tools were super high-end, but Craftsman was not just totally affordable, but a high-quality wrench. And growing up, I you know my exposure to Sears was around both their Craftsman tools, and then over the years, the Sears catalog was just my gateway to dreaming about Christmas presents. Like every year for Christmas, my grandma would have the Sears catalog and we'd go through it and we'd be like, oh, I want I want this and this. And that'd be how we'd give 
my grandma and my parents and everybody kind of a list of here's the things we really want. Uh, it was either that or walking through uh, Toys R Us and pointing at things or being taken to Toys R Us and given a budget on what to spend. But that's what Sears was for when I was growing up. Sears was a catalog that had everything in it. And when you went to Sears, it was a classic department store. So it was more robust than Walmart in its layout. And it had more, much larger dedicated sections for tools, for clothes, for toys. It was very much a giant anchor store. I mean, a lot of those Sears anchor stores are now Walmarts or gyms or I think one's a Dick's Sporting Goods back by my old house but now the sears are all gone and those giant spaces where it used to be necessary to go and eyes on or go and have service done were necessary my grandfather had a craftsman torque wrench from easily the 50s and it broke it, it finally gave up its ghost somewhere in the late 90s early aughts and at this point my grandfather had passed on and when we took it into sears and said hey this broke they said awesome we'll replace it and we had to tell him, no, can we keep this because it was my grandfather's and also, but we need one. What do we do? And instead of making us buy a new one, they were kind enough to be like, yep, we'll fill out the paperwork. You can keep that one. Here's here's your new one that works. And that kind of service and that kind of quality was really what Sears was for a lot of kids that were born in the 70s and 80s. Now, when you look back at that and you look at how many catalogs there were when I was a kid, how many Sears catalogs we all we all went through. That was our online shopping. We'd sit there and flip through and go, oh, one day I'll be able to afford. Oh, I didn't even know this existed. Those are the kind of reactions that happen with the Sears catalog. And so when we start talking about what we're going to talk about today, which is the Modern Homes Project and Sears Kit Homes, I'm going to give you this quote from curbed.com. To fully appreciate the impact of the Sears kit homes, it's important to understand the reach of the company's famous catalog. In 1908, when Sears began selling homes by mail, one-fifth of the country subscribed. Americans anywhere could flip through the four-pound, 1,400-page Bible of consumerism, thumb through more than 100,000 items, and have any one of them delivered to their door. That is phenomenal. That is that is Amazon level reach with paper catalogs. It's insane. Everybody knew what it was. Everybody knew that Sears had it. Sears even advertised on some of its earlier catalogs. These are the prices that your local person pays. If they're trying to overcharge you, now you will know because here are the prices. Now you know. It was it was an MSRP advertisement at the same time. That's crazy. That's just this amazing reach for a stack of paper in the 1900s. I mean, you can get into the phone book and things like that, but those are locally produced and kind of sourced pieces. This is a national brand with national reach in one-fifth of the country's homes. So they're not the first person or the first company to do mail-order houses. Uh, in 1906, there's a North, North American construction company, and they were selling ready cuts and Aladdin homes out of Michigan, but they were mostly smaller things. They were boathouses, they were garage, they were cottages for your, your summer retreat, right? So that company, as well as like Montgomery Ward tried, they just got in a little bit later. So there were, there were other companies doing this. But as we go through this, you'll see why Sears' reach was so profound and Sears' influence was so profound. So 
1908, the first houses, they were in catalogs. They had 44 plans and some supplemental parts and most of it, but not lumber kits. And there were some pieces that were missing, but you could get the plans, uh, a box of screws, a bunch of the things that hold it together, and you could build off of that. They evolved on that, and in 1911, they started including framing lumber in their packages. And then in 1914, they started cutting parts to size before shipping. So this is crazy. At this point in 1914, you can open up the Sears Robot catalog, find a house you like. You couldn't click buy. You had to call buy or mail buy. And then it would show up. And it was a 25-ton kit on a boxcar, in a boxcar, on a flatbed, showed up by train. It had 30,000 or more pre-cut parts, including plumbing, electrical fixtures, fixtures, and some of them had 750 pounds of nails, a half ton of nails. Uh, they're not cheap budget houses either. They're surprisingly high quality houses. Sears had bulk buying power and centralized manufacturing, and with the rails, they could fill up flat cars with really good quality wood, bring it in and split it up. They could load up a boxcar with fixtures. They could load up best nails and then repackage it and ship it Ikea style and save in so many places. They were, they were saving on the bulk buy. They were saving on the shipping costs. They were saving on just this stack of stuff that ends up with this product that is cheaper for you than for you to buy it locally. A lot of times you couldn't get a bunch of these locally, so you'd be paying shipping over and over on these things anyway. And then they're also saving on, so you're saving, they're saving, and everybody's making money in the margins, which is great. And this thing arrives, and you have to imagine, in 1914, a railroad car shows up with a 25-ton stack of stuff on it. And to get that to your build site is a monumental undertaking in itself. So this definitely involved at least a contractor or two in the neighborhood, if not a parade of trucks and farm vehicles. I mean, I'm, I'm reminded of how Quaker communities build barns in a weekend. Like just everybody's, if they're not helping out, they're being hired to help. And that neighborhood action and construction combined with paid specialists, you have the people building it being advertised to by Sears directly. As you're building this thing, you're looking at how well it goes together, what the end result is, and you're talking to the guy that bought it. He goes, yeah, it was, it was like $3,000 out of a Sears catalog, and now it's here, and we're going to finish it, and we're going to live in it. And that neighborhood would have these anchor houses where one Sears home would come in, some people would build their own houses. You'd help on that and realize how different the experience was building a non-Sears home. And then you'd get a Sears home. So this happens where when somebody buys one, it's the impetus for a lot of people to buy more of them. The, they'd often, you know, as they're building them, they're using paid specialists too. So the, the houses got more complex. So did building codes. So local tradesmen would do electrical plumbing. Sometimes they'd even do the entire build for hire. There were developers that did entire builds. So this, this cottage industry builds up around this new builds and homes. And the people that are doing the builds are learning new techniques that are these nationally vetted techniques that Sears figured out on how to put plumbing in places and how to put electrical together. Like it's, it's, 
it's this huge dissemination of knowledge to the local trades. Um, a quote from openculture.com. These houses could have a significant effect on the character of a neighborhood. Not only could potential buyers see firsthand and participate in the construction, they could order the same or a similar model, customize it, and even, as the company tells us in its own short history of the Sears modern home, they could design their own homes and submit the blueprints to Sears, which would then ship off the appropriate pre-cut and fitted materials. So even if you didn't like the layout of the house and you were going to build your own home, you could, if you listen to the, the episode I did with my parents where we talked about where we put a room addition on, we paid for that as we could afford it. And so it took us a little over three years to build a, a second story onto the house because we did everything ourselves and we had the money as it came. But if you can pay it up front in 1914, you send blueprints to Sears, you get your stack of stuff, and then you put it together. It's crazy. So there were people that could afford it. There were people that couldn't afford it. And Sears noticed this and did something really smart. So in 1911, Sears started financing these houses as well. At this point in time, there's a huge immigrant community that's been coming in. That's going to continue after World War I. That's going to continue through the end of this program. There's this giant immigrant flood into the country. That group is booming. They're not really working well with the pretty conservative banking community for capital loans. They're not likely to be fully banked. There's a lot of bankless people there. So Sears started lending them money. And so they go, cool, your package is 25% upfront and six to 10% interest for a five-year loan on the rest, or you get a 15-year loan at higher rates. So this, this enables people access to a home that could have only maybe afforded a shack. And when some of these homes cost $1,000, $2,000, you're getting pretty reasonable for a five or a 15-year loan. Like it's pretty easy to make that work. So 1914 is when they really started offering the true ready-built. All the parts were cut. And Sears was making the estimate that while the house often was pretty close on price of all the goods, you weren't having individual parts shipped individually, so you're saving on shipping. You're not having to cut all the stuff on site, so you're saving, in their estimate, up to 40% on labor costs. So... It's this fascinating kind of piece where you've got a really, really strong product that pretty much sells itself. So 1918, Sears moves on from that and stops, starts, excuse me. In 1918, Sears moves on from that and starts offering its honor-built line. Everything's higher end, thicker cabinet wood, better paint, better shingles, better siding, upgraded options for bathtubs, sinks, water heaters, and electrical upgrades. And so then they have this tiered kind of system. They've got the honor built, the standard built, and the simplex. The simplex was this prefab panelized one story. It could be taken apart and transported. Uh, They're usually used for garages, summer cabins, or cottages. You know, if you're going to go throw it down on top of some dirt, you'd probably clear off that area and then you'd maybe take it with you and you'd be like, I'm going to live here for six months of the year and here for six months of the year. That'd be challenging. So maybe they'd leave them. I'm not sure, but they, they had these three classes, right? If you go and look these up, I really recommend you spend some time online. I'll have some links to these three kind of websites we've been talking about. Um, there's everything. There's 10 room, two stories with basements. There's bungalows in California and Florida. There's just this huge variety of properties. Um, a bunch of the older homes, the first ones they were selling, the plans and then some of the lumber kits had no indoor bathrooms. 
1930, the larger homes had two baths or powder rooms. Some had more. You still had some that didn't have bathrooms, especially when you're talking about the simplex garage, summer cabins, cottages. Those you're probably going to have an outhouse anyway. You're not really plumbed. Um, interestingly, you can see some of them that are still standing too. A lot are, especially in the southwest where humidity doesn't mess with them much. Um, there's some in the northeast as well. It's it's They're phenomenally built houses. A quote from Old Houses Online to talk about the character of these homes. So modern homes catalogs were issued most years, sometimes twice a year, from 1908 until 1940. There are a few years for which no catalogs are presently known. In the beginning, modern homes designed were assigned numbers rather than names, but soon titles, often suggesting a style provenance, began to accompany the attractive illustrations. Sears knew its audience well, and its designs were those most popular at the time. The styles were deliberately conservative rather than innovative. Uh, I'm pausing from the quote right now because I want to call that out. They weren't making brand new things a lot. They were, some of the smaller cabins were pretty innovative in the way they put them together. They had panelized builds. But the styles, they knew people would buy. They were making Levi jeans. They weren't making nice suits because they didn't want to chase fashion. They wanted to sell homes. So they said, cool, what what sells well? Okay, once they figured out what sold well, they'd then take it apart and figure out how to do that same house more efficiently. And so when those plans arrived in, uh, in neighborhoods to be built, they went, oh, we never thought about doing that for the corners. We never thought about doing that for the plumbing. And so there was this conservative piece in the styles, but there was innovation in the building. And that innovation really was built around getting the most lumber and the most cuts out, getting the most or the, the littlest amount of plumbing so you could ship less. It was really... That's where the innovation comes in. It's not the properties themselves, but the back end. Uh, returning to the quote now from Old Houses Online. Uh, beginning with a simplified Queen Anne, modern home styles range from arts and crafts bungalows and four squares in the 19th and 20s through the various European revivals of vaguely French, English, and Spanish, usually mission styles, in the 1920s to the colonial revivals Cape Cods and Dutch colonials found mostly in the 1920s and 30s. Modern homes catalogs often carry designs well past what is generally considered their peak years. Bungalows were the most frequently built of all Sears house types, along with the Colonial Reviver and the Cape Cod Cottage, the longest lived. It appeared in every catalog from 1908 onward. As late as 1939, the Winona, which first appeared in 1916, is shown with another rather stodgy five-room example, the Plymouth, which first appeared in 1934. Just stepping out of the quote one more time, uh, this next part is fascinating to me because they're going to talk about what else they did that wasn't that was that was actually pretty insane. So back to the quote. Although most designs were conservative, there were some large and elegant surprises. One of the most elaborate from the 19 and 1921 catalogs is bearing a close resemblance to Henry Wadsworth Longfellow's Cambridge, Massachusetts residence is the three-story, eight-room Neo-Georgian Magnolia with a two-story columnated portico, porte-cochere, and sleeping porches. The Aurora and the Carlton, both of which appear in 1918, are sophisticated prairie school designs, and the flat roof Bryant is in the international style. The 33 to 39 catalogs feature several early split levels, including a Concorde. Sears' later catalogs include a number of Sears-built exhibition houses, including two reproductions of Mount Vernon, one for a 1931 exposition in Paris, and one for a Washington Bicentennial celebration in Brooklyn. A reproduction of New York City's Federal Hall, the first capital of the United States, a dream home for Warner Brothers, 
that was uh, and a fully furnished model house exhibited at the 1933 Center of Progress World Fair in Chicago. So th- they went up for it in this kind of advertising column. But even saying that that's like going for it, they were able to do a reproduction of Mount Vernon, pack it, take it across the sea, and put it up in Paris for the 1931 exhibition. That's a crazy undertaking. It's, it's truly an advertising piece, but it's also just look at what we can do. You're perfectly safe buying home for us because we can reproduce Mount Vernon and ship it across the ocean. So that all said, there were other groups that took advantage of this. There were developers that built whole neighborhoods just with these homes. Standard Oil built a million-dollar development in Carlinville, Illinois, where they purchased 192 honor belts for coal mine employees. Those houses cost between 3600 and 4600 at the time and were considered high-quality worker housing. Uh, developers got in on this and built places like Cheverly, Maryland, and Crescent Hills and Hopeland. They're all high-class Sears homes built by developers in the 20s. So this is very similar to the way you'll get three or four floor plans that flip back and forth in a development. The plans are expensive. You also see some modern builders doing this where they localize the cuts and they'll do all the cuts before they ship the lumber out, decreasing the amount of lumber waste by up to 15%, which is crazy because most lumber waste is in the 20 to 30%. If you drop it down below 15%, that's just profit. That's just efficiency. That's just good for the environment. So... While we talk about this, let's let's talk about its effect. So just Sears between 1900 and 1949, we're broadening this period to talk about numbers, but they built, they sold 70,000, 70,000 homes. And of the homes still standing in 2022, 12 million were built between 1900 and 1949. So of those 12 million that are still standing today, even if all of the Sears model homes were still standing, it'd be 70,000 and it's much less than that now. So it's not a huge number of homes, but I can't understate the amount of an effect that this had on the public consciousness, seeing these houses when everyone came into their neighborhood, flipping through the Sears catalog and seeing it, that reach and that opinion making kind of set the flavors of what was a house that was an acceptable house. You didn't get into anything that was crazy. You didn't get anything to mad. It just kind of reinforced these are the houses that have been chosen by the nation. So this is one of the first kind of national um, housing styles that gets set. It, it's it's this very conservative, but it's these different patterns are chosen. And then those are the homes that people think of as the homes. Okay, so... Coming off of this and reverting back to what we started this whole thing with, which is the housing crunch. So how do we do something like that now? Is it even possible? Well, there's a couple of things that stand in the way of this. Um, There are advanced manufacturing capacity where they're making, in the same way that they make trusses for the roof, they can make a whole bunch of walls and then they just drop off a bunch of walls and you put them up, put trusses on top and you got your frame done. Um, you've, you've got panelized houses where you kind of slap them together, but we don't have the same infrastructure we did then rail is not as expansive as it was in the first half of the 20th century in the first half of the gosh, we're in the 23rd century now, but in the first half of the 23rd century, our rail capacity is less than it was in the first half of the 20th century. Um, financing is much different now where Sears direct finance, you'd have to be a pretty big company to take on that risk. 
And I don't know if banks are ready to do purchase loans on not the land, like just the properties. Because then, you know, I, I don't know enough about mortgages to know how that would work for them. I think that the shipping piece, too, is really interesting because everybody's got their own flavor and style now. And so when you talk about packaging all this up, the add-ons or changes that people are going to do is probably going to add to the drag on Amazon, Wayfair, other suppliers. And you'll get all this stuff and there'll be parts of it that you might not want. So it'd have to be a more pared-down product, right? It'd have to be something where... I don't know. There's there's a, a company that's doing really interesting things with um, blueprint design. And what they're doing is they're, you kind of draw the walls and then it generates blueprints. And then you can kind of modify them. So I wonder if it's possible to take some kind of a product like that, a product like the framing one, and then tradesmen, and get some kind of the same kind of thing. Um, having been near home building but not directly involved in home building i've seen the flow through of the construction and how the the pads are built in order and then the the framing happens and the plumbing happens and it it goes up and it's in series but what about the people that just go hey i bought this house and what if it's a craftsman house sure so say they buy a craftsman house that was built in 1908 on a single lot somewhere in san diego or la Hell, somewhere in uh, Maryland or in that that um, oil, standard oils, worker housing. Say they buy one of those and go, cool, I don't want this house. I need a bigger house that's well insulated and can actually hold the whole family and has plumbing. How do we do that? How do we flip some of these properties that are 2131 into four twos, five threes affordably. Is there a flip model that could be mass produced and mass consumed? Is there an ADU product where you go, here's the dimensions of my garage and here's what I know about the build on my garage. And you either tear down the whole garage and they just come and go, new garage and an ADU. Or do they just come and drop something on top of the garage for the ADU? This is where I think in the next, well, right now, actually, we don't have, we don't have the next 10 years figured out. I think, I think right now we start being creative in how we build these new units, replace existing inventory, and kind of upgrade the housing land, landscape across the board. I, I think this is where people that are homeowners, people that are, are renting, <clears throat> have an opportunity to kind of come together and go, hey... I want this house to be more profitable. Do you mind if I split it into two? You'll get more space and I'll have an additional dwelling unit that I can rent, but then you'll have neighbors, right? That, that's It's something not everybody wants, but we need more places to live. We need more places to take care of our aging in place population, our new household formation, to support immigration, to kind of really put us in a spot where we can accommodate more. This land is huge. It's a massive piece of property. From sea to shining sea to shining sea, we are anywhere from the second to the fourth or yeah, second to the fourth largest depending on which ones you look at. And that's that's Canada, USA, and China are all they they shuffle back and forth on which one's the biggest. But 
the United States has a lot of unused, productive, arable land. Places that we could build, we could put stuff in. We don't have the infrastructure for a lot of them. We don't have the water for a lot of them. We don't have the flood prevention for a lot of them. We don't necessarily have the food for all of them. So these are all problems to solve. But when you start looking at the housing solution, you realize that this could work in concert with other things to deliver homes that are massively energy efficient with the, the a minimal envelope where you've got almost no heat or cool loss at any time, day or night. You can build houses that come with solar panels already integrated into the south-facing roof side. You can come with uh, houses that already sit on their own. They're, they're already ready to plug into the water and sewer system, but everything else is is fully contained. Um, it, there's ways to do this, and we can get there. We can definitely, definitely do it. I'm a marketing guy. I'm not necessarily an expert on any of this stuff. I helped my dad build a house and I, I've been involved with construction projects. So I have some knowledge and I'm, I'm learning as I go. And I think what I want for everybody to hear from this as we kind of come out of it is that there was a major American company that figured out how to flat pack and ship whole houses a hundred years ago, more than a hundred years ago. So our innovation and our ability to do these things is there. Let's find ways that we can cooperate between the land use stuff, the building code stuff, and then the manufacturing side. And we need like kind of a, a summit that kind of puts these things all together and goes, here's, here's how we can technically achieve this. I think that would be the ultimate prop tech breakthrough is going, yep, here is how you order a house online and have it delivered to your site and built. And so you show up and it's done the way you want it. That'd be unbelievable. That'd be phenomenal. So with that, I want to thank you all for listening. I invite you to reach out and let me know if I've got, if there's some better way to do this that I'm missing, you can reach me at justinl at poplarhomes.com and you can reach us and ask for property management services uh, at poplar.home slash pod. That's poplar.home slash pod. Thank you all for listening and I hope you have a great rest of your day. Mm-hmm.